This week, I was preparing the teaching, and I finished out, I just want to let you know, I don't want to raise your expectations too high, but I did finish John chapter 14, and I finished John chapter 14 like uh, on Thursday, and then Friday I realized that today was Father's Day. And have you ever had to teach a lesson about Father's Day? How many have had? Anybody? Like you think about it, like I said, so I, so I said, okay, do the prayer, you know, oh, Holy Spirit, lead me and guide me to the right place and the right, you know, biblical character that we're all going to admire and learn things from. And of course, I started in the Old Testament and, uh, you know, the first person, go-to person in the Old Testament, who do you think that is? Yeah, Abraham. Someone said the same thing. This is amazing. At the first service, they said the same thing. And then someone immediately said, uh, yeah, but what about the, what about come up to the mountain with me? And, and uh, oh, Father, Father, where is the sacrifice? And the Father's going along up the mountain, and uh, he says to him what? God will provide. And I know a lot of fathers, you know, have wanted to take their kid, you know, their son, and say, you know, where are we going, oh, Father, oh, blessed one? Oh, we're going up the mountain. Well, why do we only have one lunch? God, yes. <laughs> like Linda Pilo is right on this. Uh, God will provide. And then you think about, like, how about, you know, the guy in the ark? How about Noah? No, I don't, I don't think so. How about a prophet? How about Samuel as a great father? No, I don't think so. And, and like you look at the Old Testament and it's, I mean, if I wanted to, like the dads that have come here today, if I really wanted to depress you, I would just do uh, a series through the Old Testament about fatherhood and failure. I, I don't, I don't think you need that today. And then we, come, then we come to the New Testament. And the New Testament is, I mean, you've got a lot more to work with. I tell you that. Yeah, the first person that came to my mind was Joseph. Every, everybody likes Joseph, right? And how about um, Zebedee? You know, the sons of Zebedee, James and John. But they, they don't tell us a bit, nothing about Zebedee. Was he a... I mean, was he a godly man? Well, he produced... God, but there's not much to work with there. And then, oh, Old Testament one that was really positive was um, Job. How about that? You know, he loved his family, but, you know, life happens. <laughs> I mean, what do, you, what do you do with all of that? Okay, back to the New Testament. So you got Joseph, you got... Zebedee. Someone mentioned to me, who's another? There's like one other, maybe. Maybe. Maybe Zachariah, maybe, you know, from, you know, Elizabeth, you know, maybe. Um, and so I finally landed, and this is our text this morning, I finally landed on Luke chapter 15. And it's really not a story. It's, I mean, it is a story, but it's a what? It's a parable. And what, we, what can we learn from that up until this point? Well, we can learn this, that fatherhood is a tough job. 
and, and not many, Old Testament or New Testament manage to do it well. We can learn that fatherhood is difficult even in our own day. Like we could look at some statistics from our own day. In the United States today, there's nearly 18.5 million children that grow up without their fathers. Fatherhood's difficult. We know that 70% of all adolescent patients in drug and alcohol treatment centers originate from homes without what? Without a father. We know that 90% of all homeless and runaway children come from homes without a, without a father. We know that if dad, if dad does not attend church, only one in 50 kids grow up as an adult and become part of a worshiping community. One in 50. We know this, that, that if a father comes to Christ and is converted to Christ, and he's the first person in the family to be converted to Christ, 93% of the people within his household will come to church and to faith in Christ. And so fatherhood is this critical aspect of imparting faith to our children. Now, what's the, what's the other side of the coin? The other side of the coin is that we have all, for the most part, either biblically or practically, we have all had an imperfect father. How many would say amen to that? Yeah. And so when we come to Father's Day as a preacher, I come to Father's Day recognizing that there is a tremendous amount of brokenness within our own hearts when we begin thinking about our fathers. When I was a boy, my father was uninvolved. When I was a boy and going through high school, played three sports in high school, when I was a boy for four years, my father attended this many, zero, sporting events. When I was 18, at Logan Airport, getting on a plane to go to basic training at Lachlan, it was the first and only time I saw my father cry. All of us have imperfect parents. We have imperfect fathers. We have imperfect mothers. Now, I love my mother. She's 90. She's frail. She's a cute little old lady. But, you know, go and try to mother me and see my reaction. Stop. I only have one mother. 
And that is enough. We all have imperfect parents. In order to mature, and if nothing else happens today, I hope this happens. In order to mature and to grow, go on with our life as an adult, we need to recognize that God in his design has given us imperfect parents for a very special reason. And the very special reason is so that we could, so that we could find our satisfaction and fulfillment in God, our Heavenly Father. And that the wounds and brokenness that we experience today, that the call of God upon brokenness and wounds, and I know that there's some serious wounds here this morning. Some serious abuse, yes. But the way through that is not to live in the midst of that. The way through that is to forgive and release that person and release that hurt to our Heavenly Father who wants to bring us healing in the midst of brokenness and wants to, to bring redemption to those areas in our life so that we can go on to completion and to find our true satisfaction only in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who satisfies and heals the brokenness in our hearts. And so this Father's Day, if there's that brokenness in your heart, if, if your mother or your father ha has, has let you down, then come to that place where the prison doors are opened, where the captive is set free. And that place is when we say, yes, Lord, I have been, I have been transgressed. I have been wounded. I, I am broken. But as an act of my will, I choose to forgive, and I ask you to come into my heart by the power of the Holy Spirit and bring your forgiveness and bring your healing into my heart in my life. And when you get to that place, you can mature and you can grow and God can begin to do a new thing in your life. What I've noticed in my life over and over again is brokenness is an opportunity to experience the grace of God, the redemption of God, the healing of God in our lives. And so before we wrap things up, that's 10.39. Well, by faith, we'll wrap things up before noon. <laughs> you say, you better, I'm out of here. I would hope that, that as we move towards the Lord's table today, that, that you would have courage to say, Lord, I forgive. Lord, heal me and set me free. Let's pray, and then we'll come to our text. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We pray, Lord, that, Lord, that you would bring your healing uh, to our hearts and lives. And Lord, as we come to one text where we can really reflect upon the roles of children and fathers, uh, children towards fathers and father towards children, Lord. Lord, that you would, 
uh, free us uh, to receive your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to uh, uh, Luke chapter 15. And what we see in Luke 15 is we see a trilogy of parables. We see three parables. And within each parable, we see, uh, say, a trilogy of outcomes. So we see three parables. And we, th- we see three distinct movements within each parable. The first movement is something is what? In, in all three of these parables, something is lost. And then the second movement is something is what? Found. Oh, you guys are great. Much better than the 830 group. And then the, <laughs> and then the, third, par- uh, the third movement in each one of these parables is, is something is lost, something is found, and, and what is the third movement in the parable? There is joy. There is rejoicing. There, there, there is a gathering of community to rejoice in what God has done in each one of these parables. Now, when we look at verses 1 and 2, we find out who these parables are directed at. Come there with me. Uh, yeah, Luke 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And so, the scurvy ones, the sinners, Jesus was talking to them. He wants them to understand the love of God towards them. That if there's just one of them, we're going to see this in the parable, parables, if there's just one of them, what is God going to do? He's going to seek and save the one. So that's one part of the group that Jesus is speaking to. Uh, verse 2, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So that's the second group. The second group are the religious people. The first group, they're desperate. Oh, Lord, save me. Oh, Lord, I'm a sinner. How many of you are sinners? Oh, you are so good. Yeah, that's right, you sinners. The second group is the religious people. Now, watch out now. It's the religious people. They got it all together. They are experts at the law. They know, they know what to do, when to do it, and they always smell good, dress good, but they don't love good. When I think and of my own heart, I won't ask you, but in my own heart, both those groups exist. There's the sinner that wants grace, but there can be Dr. Conway. It's got it all wired. Got it all figured out. Both of those lurk in our own heart. When we get to the parable of the prodigal, that's what my Bible says, but it's really... A man had two sons. Both of them are prodigals. One went off to a far country. One stayed home, but they're both rebellious. That's what's in my heart. 
He's like, you're the pastor. Is there any hope for me? <laughs> yes, Jesus. He's our only hope. He's my hope. He's your hope. The thing is, is that he invites us to experience his grace, which is what the parables are all about. Three parables. Thematically, something's lost. Something's found. And then there's great joy. Let's take a look at them. We're in Luke 15, verse 3. So Jesus told them this parable. And I, I like how Jesus begins dealing with these, especially the religious folks. He draws them in. The first one you can go, oh, yeah, 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 that's all right. Yeah, Jesus, yeah, that's good. We like that. Then the second one gets a little bit more sticky. Ooh, I don't know about that. That seems like somewhere against the law doesn't quite seem right. Then you get to the third parable. Ooh, look at the first one. It says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, and all the religious guys go what? Oh, it's so sweet, Jesus. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons. <gasps> what? And he begins pricking their heart. Because their righteousness is established by works and outward performance and not the heart. He goes on to the second Oh, or, or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And the religious people go, Well, as long as she's tithes on that lost coin, I think it's okay. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over what? One sinner. What about all our efforts? What about the budget? What about the program? For just one person? Can't there be more? No, Jesus says, just one. And then we come to the third. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me. And the younger son is selfish, self-centered, wants things before his time. Both sons are mature. Both sons are adults. Both sons can do and move and make decisions for their life. The younger son goes, give me. 
I have an entitlement. I want it. Take a look at the text. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Look at the father. Father respects his son. Father will divide the inheritance. The father is not controlling. The father doesn't step in and said, I forbid you to do that. Why does he do that? Because when we're relating as a father to adult children, there's times that if our adult child is selfish and self-centered and belligerent and adamant, what is the ultimate teacher to help them move beyond that? Life. Life. Because there are, there are times as a father where the only thing that is going to remedy the selfishness and self-centeredness is as we maintain the relationship in grace and let life teach our child. When I was raising my kids, they had this thing called a... They were called helicopter parents. And they would swoop in. And I, I coached in two public high schools. And when you benched the kid, you could hear the rotators. You could hear the rotors. And they would always come up, be polite. Coach Conway, can I have a minute of your time? And I would always give them a minute of my time. And I'd say, thank you for your input. I'll give it some consideration. So they can't run to the AD or to the principal. Say, he didn't even what? He, you fill in the blank. He didn't, he didn't listen. The kid rode that bench like crazy. Yeah. Yoo-hoo. There's times we just have to let life bring the message. When Becky and Tim were growing up, they had some difficult coaches. They had some difficult situations. We'd listen to them, help them. And because Becky's sitting here, I'd have to qualify this a little bit. I can't remember one time where we intervened. Not one. And life teaches lessons that as a father, as a mother, you have to trust the Lord that that is going to inform them. And that, this father maintained that. And he's going to maintain a relationship of grace all through the parable. Come back to the text with me. Not many days later, the younger son gathered, gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now let's, let's flip the coin a little bit. 
talked about the Father and His grace and His wisdom. And we do have some young people here. And let me say this about that. That God has given you, in His sense of humor and love for you, He's given you imperfect parents. Matter of fact, the more you need, the more imperfect your parent is. It's amazing that, that um, uh, adults, uh, emerging adults, they, they, really don't, they really don't think that a parent has any wisdom until they hit the magic age of 30. Then somehow you have wisdom. But let me say, go back, that's about that. Anytime you, you remove yourself, Anytime you let bitterness and anger and self-centeredness, anytime you allow that to shut down the communication between you and your parents, it, does, it, it, it never ends well. And this, the younger, said in his selfishness, self-centeredness, he removes himself from God's provision for his life, and we'll see the story. We'll see what happens. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. What do you think the people in verse 2 are doing right now? That's outrageous! This cannot be. Life teaches. Life has a way of bringing us to the place, well, there's more to it. Verse 16, and, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything to eat. And then when he's at the bottom, when he has nothing to eat, an amazing thing happens. Light shines on Marblehead. He begins to think about what? About his, about his godly father. He begins to think that about how grace-filled his father is to the people that work for him. It, he begins to think that my father is a godly man who gives grace even to his workers. Perhaps, perhaps he would just treat me like one of his workers and I can survive. See, that, that first step towards repentance was all the years that the father spoke grace into the man's life. The first step to repentance was, re it was the hope that sprung from a godly upbringing. The step of repentance in some ways was made possible because the father did not destroy the relationship when the son took his inheritance 
and went away. What would you do? Back to the text. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. Second step. There is, there is this internal conviction of the spirit. There is an action of movement towards repentance. And then there is the change and the transformation of the heart. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The transformation that we see in the younger man is that he, he, he moves from give me, give me, give me to just make me what you want to make me into. Give me all that, I, that I'm entitled to. Just make me into one of your hired hands. And that is the transformation to maturity. It's the transformational moment that turns us just into kind of a whiny religious freako into someone that, that, that loves Jesus and says, Jesus, just, just, just work in my heart and work in my life. It turns us from, from, from uh, a person that prays with a, with a finger pointing at God. You said in the Bible, can you imagine saying that to God? In the Bible, it says, I can pray anything in your name and you got to give it to me. Give me, give me. It's like, you know, the genie in the bottle. I don't want to do the incantation, at least because someone will have a problem with it. But the genie pops out, right? And he says, hi, you have three wishes. Does it ever end well? No. no. Because we don't have a genie in a bottle. We have what? We have a, we have a heavenly father who operates and is driven by love and our best interest. And he doesn't, to our benefit and to our joy, he doesn't always give us what we want. And he, and he, and he does not always remove the life events that cause us pain because through that pain, our focus becomes on Christ and his transforming work in our heart and we mature and become trusters and finding our satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And so the transformational moment that we see in the heart of this young man is, is that moment where he releases his control and says to a sovereign God, Lord, make me into the person that you want for my life. God is not a genie in a bottle. He's our heavenly Father who loves and cares for us and sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us from ourselves. Back to the text. It's, isn't it an amazing text? I could preach this till noon. <laughs> it's Father's Day and it's 11 o'clock. Well, you know what they say at first service? They say, move on. Yeah. 
faith. Move on. Yeah, move on. Yeah, there you go. I'm just waiting for permission, you know. And the son, so verse 20, I will move on, yeah. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your sons. And what is amazing about the text and the picture of Christ that we have is all during this, all during this inner dialogue that this young man's having with himself and what he's going to do and what he's going to say, what we see is, is his father. I can't do that. Call me a Pentecostal. It is, his father is looking. His father is longing. His father is hopeful. And the text says, when he's a long way off, his father goes, Jesus, yes. And the religious leaders of the day, what do you think their response is? How improper that worthless son of his is coming back. Oh, it's disgusting. That son should be punished for wasting his life. There's someone that's going to say that in so many words. But the father relates to his son just the way Jesus relates to you and I. Look at it. He says, and the son says to him, Father, in verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to do what? Celebrate for the one. Because Christ came to seek and to save the lost. Now there's another brother. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. He's dutiful. He's, he's doing what's expected of him. Not really what we're going to see from the heart. But he's operating like in the righteousness. Take note of the context comes and flows out of verse 2. Who's Jesus speaking to? Speaking to the heart of the Pharisee, to the religious, to the legalist. Now his older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Did he go into the house to check it out? No. Did he, did he call upon his father, Father, what are you doing? No. Why? Because he was separated because of his own righteousness, his own work-centeredness. He was separated and distant from his father, and he only got the information from the servant. So what does the father do? There's two options. Father could say, huh, let life teach him. Let life teach him, yeah. Yep, yep. I knew he was worthless. Mm -mm. The father, take a look at the text. It'll tell us. Verse 29. Uh, verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father 
did what? Came out and begged him. Entreated him. Come to me, son. And what developed was an adult-to-adult conversation where the father affirms his position as a son. His father affirms that he has possessions and his father begs him to dispense grace. Come to the text. There's a little bit more. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with friends. But when this son of yours, did you, did you hear that? Not my brother. <laughs> he's, a, he's a whiny, religious, stiff, legalist, without what? Grace. Thirty-one. And he said to him, Son, position, you have always, you are always with me, and, and all, that, all that is mine, it was yours. It's, it is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead, and is alive, he was lost. And he is found. And the story ends. Lost, found, rejoice. What could be the end of this story if we consider the context? What drives the meaning of a text? Context drives the meaning of the text. If we consider the context, verse 2 Scribes and Pharisees, what are they going to do to Jesus? They're going to say, it is better for one to die than to lose the nation. They're going to send Jesus to the cross and crucify them, crucify him out of their own sense of righteousness. If we were to continue the parable based upon the context, what would be the end of this parable? It would be the older son looking at the woodpile and grabbing a log and beating his father to death. Because out of the religious spirit of the scribes and Pharisees, they were graceless, unmoved. The father when the son was a long way off, was moved by what? Compassion. When Jesus saw the crowd, that they were sheep without a shepherd, he was moved to compassion. On this Father's Day, the parable gives us some things to think about about a father who related to both sons, 
adult to adult. As a father who chose not to take offense, but to let grace prevail. I would like to say that I've been a perfect father. I know I've been a perfect grandfather, but... (laughs) But we all need that same grace. Fathers towards children, mothers towards children, and children towards parents. I'll end with what I began. I hope if there's only one outcome here today, that if you've had an imperfect parent and there's brokenness in your heart, that you could experience God's grace in your life, that you could let that imperfect parent, that you could forgive them and allow the Lord to bring his healing so that you could move on with your life and experience the grace of God as you dispense his grace into people's lives that are in your sphere of influence. Amen? Let's move to the Lord's table. Let's prepare our hearts. If the worship team could come on up at the same time.